Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. Uh, that we have the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, that we can uh, come and pray to you in his name. And we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you and pray that you would take the truths that we're going to look at from your word and that you would use them to transform our lives for your glory. Father, uh, these are neat things, and yet sometimes it's easy just to look at them intellectually and not allow you, Holy Spirit, to work in our lives, to, to do the work that needs to be done so that we can fully appreciate what it means to sing these songs and these truths about the wonderful, powerful, matchless name of Christ. And I pray that you would help us to understand and know him as our King and our Lord by your power and in your Spirit's name and by the Spirit of God and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, some of you are aware, some of you don't care about football, but some of you are really into football, and so this afternoon, it's not, gonna, not really a secret, but, uh, uh, you know, there's a game this afternoon, two games actually this afternoon, and as the Packers uh, face the Buccaneers, that's the game I picked out particularly, I'm kind of an NFC fan more than I am an AFC fan, but actually I'm not really a football NFL fan at all anymore, but if you think about it, Aaron Rodgers is the natural choice for quarterbacking the Packers, right? I mean, he's proven by his performance that he's the dude. So has Tom Brady for the Buccaneers. These guys are hands down, not a question. They're going to lead their teams in the NFC Championship game this afternoon. It's not going to be a question. But when we think about, not football, but when we think about our faith, the, the, the choice to lead us is pretty easy. And uh, Matthew makes that clear that the choice, the chosen servant of God, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Okay? But Jesus' performance as the promised king was a little bit uh, out of the norm. It kind of rocked the people that were thinking that they knew who the Messiah would be or what the Messiah would do. He broke the traditional expectations the Jewish people had from the Messiah. I mean, he declared and he demonstrated his authority and his power, and he then went on to denounce the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But when he did that, well, that turned up the heat on him because he was then become the target and he was no longer seen as this nice little guy coming out of Galilee. He was the target. He had a target on his back. And so the serious questions began to arise about, is this really the Messiah? I mean, he kind of acts like it, but we're not really sure. He's not doing what we expected him, him to do. And so when he humiliated the Pharisees, and we talked about this last week, when he humiliated the Pharisees by uh, showing that their commitment to the rules of the law were not only insincere, but they were unscriptural and they were hypocritical, whoa, uh, they decided that they were going to destroy him. So 
This morning, we, we come to it kind of like the text of Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. The, the hostility, the heat's going up, okay? So the doubts are arising and destruction is looming on the horizon. And the text for this morning serves as kind of an oasis of truth in, in a desert of doubt about who the person of Jesus is. And so if you look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verses 15 through 21, there we see that, that Jesus comes out and says, yeah, it's proven by Matthew that he is this king of Israel, but he's also the Lord of the nations. And so in the text this morning that I'm going to read here in a moment or two, we're going to see two responses that Jesus uh, has to the opposition that's mounting against him. And, and these responses serve, first of all, to comfort us that, yeah, he is the Messiah. He is the king of kings. And secondly, to challenge us to embrace him as the king of kings if we've never turned from our sin and trusted him. And, and finally, it serves to compel those who know Christ to live as he did, uh, to follow his example. I'm in Matthew chapter 12. If you have your device or if you want to, under the seats that should be in front of you, there should be a Bible and you can find one there and turn to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to begin with verse 15 and read through verse 21. It's not a very long passage of scripture, so here we go. But Jesus, aware of this, and I'll get to this in a minute, but what's he aware of? He's aware of the fact that the Pharisees are trying to, plotting to destroy him, okay? Aware of this withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. There's a lot there, but we begin, first of all, with his first response. His first response to the knowledge that they're going to destroy him or plotting to destroy him is that we see Jesus, our Lord, fled the scene. Oh, okay, so he bailed, right? Uh, didn't want the controversy. Well, there's three activities in, in these few verses, in verses 15 and 16. First of all, he withdrew rather than cause a fight, okay? So he withdrew. He could have been antagonistic. He could have caused a fight, but he didn't do that. It says, but aware of this, his omniscience, Christ's omniscience, alerted him to the fact that the Pharisees were plotting to destroy him. And so we can see this if you... And we'll be going back and forth between Matthew 12 and Mark chapter 3. Okay, so in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, similar idea, similar thing. It says that he was alerted, and so they, he knew that uh, they, he withdrew. That's what it says in Mark, Mark chapter 7. And with, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. So he withdrew to the sea. Um, courage or cowardice? Courage or cowardice? Jesus bails. I remember when uh, uh, serving in a previous pastorate, our associate pastor uh, was uh, going to the schools and visiting the students at the schools for lunchtime per their policy, which permitted him to do it. And uh, 
All of a sudden, he was unjustly forbidden to enter into the schools in violation of, which was a violation of the school's actual policy, which permitted him to do it. And so we were faced as a church with the, the, the struggle. Do we fight this? I mean, the policy clearly stated he could be there, but they said, no, you can't be there. Or do we just trust God that he'll take care of it? And our elders prayed about it, and we decided that we were just going to trust God. That if he wanted us vindicated in this process, then that would happen. And ultimately, it ended up, in some ways, it did happen. We didn't seek it, but it did kind of happen. So don't fight. When I was a kid growing up, mom and dad said this. Young people, your parents will tell you this. Most of the time, it takes more courage to walk away from a fight than to get in a fight. Okay. Now, when, uh, I'm just telling you the truth here, when the time comes, it's hard to believe that, you know. But you have to have it in your mind. It takes more courage to walk away than it does to enter into the fight. And so here we have Jesus, and there's a potential fight on his hands. But what does he do? Well, I'm guessing here. Look, the guy who casts out demons, the guy who heals diseases, the man who raises people from the dead, I don't think he was afraid of the Pharisees. I'm sure he's not really shaking in his boots over these guys. No. He was not afraid of the Pharisees at all. That's not why he did it. He submitted to his Father's will. Jesus was always about doing what the Father wanted him to do. And look at When the time came, we know the end of the story, right? When the time came, he willingly submitted to the plot of these Pharisees and the plot of the religious leaders against him, right? He willingly submitted, and he went to the cross, and he was unwilling at that point to call down 12 legions of angels to protect him. So we know that Jesus could have done it at the cross, but he didn't. He, could, he didn't do it here because he wasn't his time. Jesus was ultimately willing to do the Father's will and to die on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he was willing to go to the cross. So we see, first of all, that he withdrew rather than cause a fight. Secondly, we see that he worked miracles on the needy rather than to rub shoulders with the mighty. He withdrew to minister to the people who had the needs. It says, and many followed him and he healed them all. Many followed them, and he healed them all. Over in Mark chapter 3, it says this, that he withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Well, that's amazing. All that he was doing, and, and they came to him. They came to him. Observe that the crowd's size was a multitude. And the, the scope of the crowd, I don't know, I want you to look at a map of, uh, I think we have a map, yeah. It's hard for you to see, but if you look at this map, you'd see that in the, way up in the upper left-hand corner is Sidon and Tyre, okay? Clear down in the bottom left-hand corner is Idumea, and over across is Decapolis, across the Jordan River. So people from all of those areas came. So the size of the crowd was a multitude, and the scope of the, uh, from which they came was all over. It included Jews and Gentiles. Okay. So it included Jews and Gentiles came to see Jesus. His following consisted of them, and why would they follow him? Well, it says in Matthew, he healed them all. Why do people... Why do politicians have a great following oftentimes? Because of what they promise. 
You know, most, most uh, voters are uh, what's in it for me voters, right? It's like, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? How can I benefit? Well, human beings, whether it's religion or politics, people are often, what's in it for me? And that's what these people were. They're, what's in it for me? So they came to follow Jesus from all over the place, okay? Personal benefit is a selfish motivation. It often explains why we're attracted to different people, okay? Mark chapter 3 again, verses 9 and 10, it says, And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude, in order that, there might, uh, that they might not crowd him. For he healed many, with the result that those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. Boom. This guy's got the goods. We're going to go see uh, this Jesus person. And he, that's, he went and ministered to them. His healing proved his power and his authority. He is the Son of God. His power and authority over sin, over death, over disease. He's the guy. And it gave people a taste of, of what heaven was like. When you see healing in the New Testament, Jesus didn't heal everybody every time. Okay? Why not? Healing was a taste of heaven. It was a, it was a taste of glory. And it demonstrated his compassion. He cares about what's happening. People are sick and ill. We pray for them because Jesus cares about it. So unlike the religious elite, Jesus had compassion. On these people, whereas the Pharisees, we see that in John, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, he had compassion. Unlike the Pharisees who despised these people, and unlike the, uh, or despised them, and the Romans who really didn't care about them, Jesus had compassion on these people. The kindness of Jesus was to lead them to repentance. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's your kindness will lead us to repentance so that they would be saved, not from their physical illness ultimately, but from their greatest problem of sin in their heart he would heal them from it that's what he did uh, some of you have been to the iowa state fair like when we actually had an iowa state fair and uh, you went to the varied industries building and you walk through the varied, or you've been to a, a county fair and you've gone to like the a varied industries building which i'm not sure what they call it varied industries because most of them aren't industries they're just uh, people trying to peddle their goods right so you walk through there and you have the the little bowl you know that says sign up to win the new vacuum cleaner sign up to win the new uh, water system sign up to win a new window and uh, then you can take a bunch of free stuff, you know, pencils and refrigerator magnets and keychains and all kinds of stuff, cups, mugs, and all this stuff. Well, you don't go into the Varied Industries building thinking, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to end up buying a vacuum cleaner or a new water treatment system or a spa, a pool. You know, you don't, you know, that's not why you walked in there. You walked in there to get the free stuff, right? And look around, see what's up there. Well. These, these businesses are willing to be taken advantage of and give free stuff in order to make a sale. Jesus was willing to be taken advantage of by human beings in order to have a chance to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they could be saved from their sins. He was willing to do that so that they would have their hearts changed and turned from their sin and trust in him. Isn't that what we just read in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Folks, we live in a world in which people are weighed down. The burdens are heavy. The concerns are multitudinous. And we have the answer. And I'm just bemoaning uh, what I considered a missed opportunity the last couple of days. I took some opportunity, but I just don't feel like I did a good enough job, you know, of presenting the gospel to, to, to a person I know was hurting and is hurting. But every day we're around them and we have the answer. And Jesus said, I'll go hang out with these people because they need a physician, not just to heal their physical diseases, but their souls. And I wonder, we at Creekside, would we be more and more committed to that in 2021? I want to be. I want to be committed more and more to carrying the real message of healing, to present the Jesus, the, the great physician, to the people who, are, who need it. He came as a humble physician to heal sick souls by proclaiming the truth and engaging in ministry. Finally, he warned people not to reveal his identity, which I, you know, it's like you read this, and Jesus like, shh, quiet. You're the son of God. Shh, don't tell anybody. Secret. That's my, okay, look at verses, uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, you are the son of God. Which we saw last time, the son of, you're, you're the son of God. You're, you're Jesus, you are the son of God, you are God. And he earnestly warned them, verse 12 of Mark 3, not to make him known. We see in Matthew chapter 12, that in verse 16, and he warned them not to make him known. Whether it was the demons or the people, both, who wanted to proclaim him, he said, shh, quiet. Why? Why does he want him to tell everybody? I mean, is that what he's there for, to tell people he's the son of God? Well, first of all, he didn't want to, I don't think he wanted to heighten the conflict between him and the, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Secondly, it wasn't his time. This wasn't the time for his exaltation. This was the time for his humiliation. So he wasn't about making, making himself known. And uh, another reason is his ministry wasn't primarily doing stuff for people, like physical healing. He did that, but that was the means to an end. That was the taste of glory. That was the demonstration of his power. That wasn't all he was about. He was about their souls, not just about their sickness. So he didn't want them to make such a big deal about that. And I think part of it was he wanted people to find out who he was on their own. Not just because somebody said so. Remember the woman at the well? You know? Oh, yeah. Well, we, we know that the, the, the Messiah is coming. Yeah, well, I'm concerned about what you know, honey, not, not what, the, what the people say. What do you know? And so that's where Jesus was. It wasn't yet his time. So first of all, he fled. He fled the scene. And we see why he fled the scene, because that's part of who Jesus was. Secondly, we see that our Lord fulfilled the scriptures, and that's verses 17 through 21. Jesus' ministry Fleeing, I'm going to call it the ministry, his ministry in obscurity. Again, it's probably not unique with me. I probably read it somewhere, so, but it, it sounds good. The ministry of obscurity was for what purpose? I want you to read verse 17. Now, all that comes before it, verses 15 and 16, in order that. When you see in order that, you know that that's the, the result, the reason, or the purpose. So the, his, the reason, the purpose for him going into obscurity was what? To fulfill prophecy 
in order that he might fulfill the words of the prophet. Now we have the longest quote in the New Testament of any Old Testament passage. And the Old Testament passage comes straight to us from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Now we've read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, that Jesus is Lord, right? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Now we find out what kind of Lord he is. How does the Lord rule? He rules as a servant. And there are several characteristics that are laid out for us in the passage, quoted from Isaiah, that tell us what kind of servant Jesus was. Characteristics of this servant, okay? This servant king. First of all, Jesus is God's chosen servant. The, the Greek word that's used and translated servant there is pious, which could be translated as child or son. In fact, it's used in secular Greek to mean that this is a special servant, okay? So this is not your, uh, your traditional slave or household slave. This is a, a son, a special servant. Jesus is God's chosen servant. Jesus is God's ultimate chosen servant. Now, chosen, what's that mean? He chose him. Irrevocable and determined decision. It's the same terminology that the, that the religious leaders used to describe the Messiah, the chosen one of God. In Luke chapter 23, verse 35, it says this, And the people stood by watching, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Okay, his chosen one. This is Jesus. He's the one. Jesus is God's only son, chosen one, to bring salvation, to bring redemption, to bring deliverance for God's people. He is what Matthew is saying here. He's the promised suffering servant of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 40 through 41 through 66, okay? He's the suffering servant of Isaiah, prophesied in, by Isaiah, who, whose death justified the many. Isaiah 53, 11 says that he, his death was that to, to provide justification, that means made right with God, for the many, all right? And he went into obscurity, and when he went into obscurity, in this passage here, he's talking about going off and withdrew, he incarnated the identity of the servant of Isaiah if we'd read it, and I'm not going to spend all the time reading it, Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2. God's chosen servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah, would not merely heal people physically, but die on a cruel cross to provide spiritual healing for their souls. Heal them spiritually. He would bring glory to God by bringing God's grace to people. And you know the passage in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our offenses. He was bruised for our, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. He has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Now, if you read through that, our, 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 our is predominant. It's our sorrows and our transgressions and our iniquities. Jesus died for us. He's saying. He is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Matthew 121. He came to save his people from their sins. And that's the point. 
All of us human beings are sinful. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us deserve judgment. That's Isaiah 53, verse 8. In verse 8, it says, He was cut off. We, de- we, we deserve God's punishment. He was cut off for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. <laughs> Ever do anything wrong? Deserve to get punished? And not get punished? Yeah, I have. I remember growing up one time, I came in late from curfew. I was supposed to be home at like 10. I got home at like 10 30. And uh, I got a, a scowl and, a, and a, a reprimand verbally, but that was it. Didn't get what I deserved. Okay? I don't get what I deserve. That's mercy. So here he is. Jesus is the one who comes. So we sin, we deserve punishment, but God in Christ delivers us because Christ died in our place. He was bruised, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. He was punished in our place. Christ paid the debt that you and I owe. Because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay without spending eternity in hell. I remember there's this family, friends of ours, uh, one of their children ran up a bunch of debt. A bunch of debt. The child never paid it because the parents did. They paid a debt that the child owed. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the debt that you and I owe for our sins. Separation from God. By God's grace, for him it was only temporary, but for us it would be permanent. Unless we put our faith or our trust in what Christ did on the cross as a payment for our sin, all that he did is not accepted and paid for. A pardon extended must be received. Little Wayne is no longer guilty because he was pardoned and he accepted the pardon. If you and I don't accept the pardon that God has extended us through the person and the work of Jesus, we will remain guilty. And Jesus came to to make it possible that we could be freed from sins. And so I just ask you, have you accepted the pardon that God gave to us through the person of Jesus? And if you've accepted it, then you are his child. He is the chosen servant come to bring that salvation to us. Secondly, Jesus is pleasing to God. Not only is he a chosen servant to bring salvation to us, but he is pleasing to God. Beloved, he is his, his beloved. Behold, verse 18, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now, those words ring a bell to you if you've been around the Bible at all, because twice God the Father interjected, spoke into the world these very words of his own son, Jesus, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. That's my boy, God said. In the district final game, when our son was a junior, we were tied with the fourth-ranked team in the state. 38-38 with 10 seconds left to go in the game. We had the ball. Out of bounds at half court. Passed the ball into my son over the center line. He immediately penetrated uh, with dribble penetration into the lane. The defense collapsed on on him. He dribbled past, bounced past to our center standing right underneath the basket for an easy layup. We went ahead 
40 to 38 with 1.3 seconds left in the game. We ended up winning the game. That's my boy. No, I didn't stand up. I didn't make a fool of myself, but that's what I was thinking. You know, I was a proud papa. God the Father was a proud papa. He said, that's my boy at his baptism. That's my son at his transfiguration. My beloved in whom I'm well pleased. Do you see that 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah was saying, this guy's coming, and now 700 years later, he's on the scene. That's Jesus. It's not an accident. He's the chosen servant of God. He's one pleasing to his father. And he pleased the father most of all because he came to make redemption possible for God's created beings, us, human beings. And in Christ, only through Christ, can you and I be pleasing to the father. In him, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him and in him alone, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Thirdly, Jesus was powered by the Spirit, by God's Spirit. Now, this is, hold on to this because this is interesting to me. It says in the text, uh, verse 18, I will put my Spirit upon him and I will put my Spirit upon him. What is that about? Well, it's a special anointing of the Spirit that indicates a unique divine empowerment. Jesus as God, I mean, we believe and taught and teach that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus as God was equal with the Father in power and glory. He, he was indwelt by the Spirit. He had a relationship in the Godhead with the Spirit. So he didn't need the Spirit in his divinity, but in his humanity, he was invested with the Spirit of God so that the two would work in concert together, that he would be fully God, fully man, fully united and walking in the Spirit at all times. John MacArthur puts it this way, his humanness received the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in order for it to function in concert with his deity. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Now, again, we're talking about the root of Jesse, this human person, descendant of David. Uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, in his deity, Jesus didn't need any of that. He had it all. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he, his eyes see, nor make decisions, but what his ears hear. This is a prophecy about the person of the root of Jesse, fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and the Spirit of God came to rest upon him. And by his Spirit, he was able to minister to the hurting, the needy, the afflicted, and the estranged. Fourthly, Jesus proclaimed justice to the Gentiles. Justice to the Gentiles. Jesus, God's chosen servant, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. You can write this down if you're taking notes. If you want to, I'm going to go over these. We don't have a picture of Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 49, 6, which say he will be a light of revelation, a light to the Gentiles. This servant of God will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, we will look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble, okay, to preach the gospel. That's what the good news is, the gospel to the humble. This prophecy was fulfilled, Jesus said it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He opened the book of, uh, of Isaiah and he started reading, today this prophecy is fulfilled among you. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To do what? Well, go back to Matthew chapter 18. What does it say? I will put my Spirit upon him, and the last part of verse 18, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is him proclaiming justice. It's the gospel, the good news. The good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now notice the words about proclaiming and speaking. He anointed me. No, go back please to that, that slide. He anointed me to proclaim or to bring good news to the humble by verbally sharing it with them. And next phrase, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. He's proclaiming, he's proclaiming, he's proclaiming. But what is everybody focusing on? What he's doing, what he's doing, what he's doing. He's healing, he's healing, he's healing. But in his healing, he's proclaiming. Justice. The emphasis here is on proclamation of truth that saves, not primarily from physical ailments, but from spiritual malady, from spiritual wickedness, from spiritual affliction, lost condition. Since mankind's latest or greatest problem is sin, not disease. Disease is a result of sin. It's the manifestation of a sinful world in which we live. Folks, my mind goes bonkers when I start thinking about the world in which we live. A world in which we live now in which it's perfectly okay for guys, dudes to go into girls' restrooms and girls' showers and to participate in girls' sports and it's okay for unborn babies' lives to be taken and we're supposed to be okay with that. We are a world desperately in need of Christ. A sin-sick world. Which people don't just, I mean... Biology, common sense, and any sense of moral base is being eroded right before our very eyes. And Jesus didn't come primarily to heal our sicknesses, although he does. He didn't come primarily to to raise people. You know, how many people did Jesus actually raise from the dead? Or how many people were actually raised from the dead that we have recorded? Very few. I mean, just that's that's like a minuscule diseases compared to all the humanity and all the people that were sick. Not that many people were were healed of their diseases. He still does it. He has power to do it. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is to preach justice to the Gentiles. That would have blown their categories. They're all Jews. Justice to the Gentiles. Well, Well, wait a second. This is about us. Justice to the Gentiles. Why? Because I, why do we need to save from our sin? Isaiah says your sin has caused a separation between you and your God. And we see that in our culture. And that God would use the people of Israel as a channel through which the nations would experience God's grace shouldn't have come as a shock or unexpectedly. Because we go back to Genesis chapter 12. What's the promise to Abraham? In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations. See, from Genesis to Revelation, the the message of salvation is to the Jew and to the Gentile. To the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. It's not some some exclusive club. I don't know about you, but if you you ever make a contribution, or even if you don't make a contribution, if you actually are, you you get these uh, surveys in the mail, you know. We want to know what your opinion is or what, what, what policies you would like to have uh, done. You know, like, we're really interested in what you have to say. 
That's a bunch of garbage. You don't care about what I say. I'm not in some chosen group. Some, you know, they're playing on our pride to make us think that we're an exclusive group that they're going to get our, our, uh, our information from and then they're going to do something with it. When all they want is my money. All they want is your money. You know? I mean, I, I took one of those surveys once. I said, just do what you, just do what you ran on or just do what you uh, said you were going to do. And then I said, no money. You know? Here's the deal. Jesus says, look, Jews, salvation is not exclusive to you. I'm not playing to your pride. I'm not saying that you guys are the, 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 you are special people in God's eyes. No doubt about that. But you're not the only ones. I came to bring justice to the Gentiles, okay? I came to give God's hope to them. So then I'm going to skip over. I'm going to skip over verses 19 and 20. Go to verse 21 for the next point, okay? Because we're talking about the Gentiles here. So please allow me, if you will, a little anachronistic uh, uh, out of order stuff, okay? But in verse 21, the point is this. Jesus is the hope for the Gentiles. Jesus is the hope for the Gentiles. And in his name, it says, in his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, the Gentiles will hope. This root of Jesse is the one promised long ago in whom the Gentiles would hope. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Then on that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. This is a person, not, not, a, not a tree root. Uh, it's a descendant of Jesse, okay? Who will stand as a signal flag for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is, Jesus is the fulfillment of this person. This Isaiah 50, 11, verse 10, is quoted in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. In his name means in the name of Jesus, and to hope in his name is to trust in him. To trust in Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 says, This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded. And neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus. So, are you saved? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in his death as the payment for your sin and that alone and turning from your sin and surrendering to him as the Lord of your life? That's the question. That I'm, I'm the guy. He's the hope of the Gentiles. That's the only hope we have. You should love it. Hope in what? Hope in Christ. It's not just hope in hope, hope in a good life, hope in the stock market, hope in the next elected official. It's hope in Christ. Not only would the gospel come to the Gentiles, but they would respond by trusting in Christ. To turn from our sin and to trust in him alone. That's, that's our hope. Because then we have an inheritance that's undefiled, that fades not the way that's reserved in heaven for us. We have purpose and meaning life in life now. We have power to overcome sin now in Christ. Finally, we see Jesus is gracious in dealing with people. Verses 19 and 20. This is our Lord. This is the chosen servant. He's gracious in dealing with people. First of all, in verse 19, we see that he is not contentious or quarrelsome with those who are contrary. Remember, he walked away. But notice the text says, he will not quarrel nor cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not belligerous, belligerent. He's not obnoxious. He's not rude, crude, and socially unacceptable. He doesn't stand up and make a scene. To present the truth of the gospel, the truth of salvation, he says, repent and believe. Jesus is not obnoxious. And quarrel means to hassle, to brawl. To cry out means to be, shout excitedly. Jesus didn't 
make a scene. You know, some people make a living making a scene. I have two examples. Uh, Stephen A. Smith, who's an ESPN uh, sports analyst guy. I mean, every time I hear the guy, he's just uh, uh, kind of he, like over the edge. He's, he's very in your face. He's very opinionated. And Joy Behar, okay, on The View. Now, if you don't know who they are, that's fine. Uh, I don't follow either one of them necessarily. I just know about them, okay? But they, they're, they're the kind of people who agitate. Jesus wasn't an agitator. Uh, in in an agitator or aggravation or contention, that wasn't who he was. He didn't incite crowd. He didn't tell lies. He didn't, uh, you know, use trickery to present the gospel. But with dignity, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with self-control, Jesus interacted with people and winsomely invited people into the kingdom. That's the kind of people we need to be. Patiently. Graciously. Kindly. Humility. Self-controlled. Winsomely presenting the truth. The gospel's offensive enough. <laughs> You're a sinner headed for hell. You need to turn and trust Jesus. That's offensive. So let's not try to be adding to that. That's offensive enough. But let's not run from it. We need to speak the truth in love. You know, on social media, sometimes the rhetoric that I find most offensive, the world celebrates. I mean, that's what's really kind of odd. I mean, if, if someone is rude, if they're crude, they're petulant, they're obnoxious, they're boisterous, then they, they get a lot of likes, you know, they get a lot of uh, retweets, they get a lot of this, 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 you know, and I'm kind of going, well, that's, that's just kind of, uh, that's offensive, you know. But that's the way the world is. Jesus says, no, the way of the world is not winsome. He was not quarrelsome. He didn't argue. Secondly, Jesus is tender with those who are vulnerable. Notice the text says in verse 20, and a battered reed or a bruised reed. Now, you know, a reed was one of those plants that grew up along the water's edge. And if a reed was bruised in the wind and the breeze, I mean, it's pretty much done, right? I mean, it's pretty much shot. I mean, it's not going to, you can't really fix it. You know, it's like you don't put a splint on a, on a broken reed. It's just not. And so he's a broken reed. He's not going to break. Or a bruised reed, he's not battered, a bruised, he's not going to break it. And then it says a smoldering wick, which, you know, some of us are going to have to go Google what that is, you know, but there's these lanterns, you know, that have oil in them, and then the wick comes up, and you light the wick, and, the, and a smoldering wick is when the wick burns down, there's nothing left of it, or like a candle. When it's burned down all the wax, it's about ready to go out. So this means people who are broken and almost done for, worn out, the, 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 the people who are the defenseless and the diseased and the disenfranchised and the de destitute in society. These were the disposable people to the Romans. <laughs> they were the despicable people to the religious leaders. These were the people Jesus hung out with. These were the people that Jesus cared for. These are the G people Jesus retreated to be with. You see, uh, he wanted to restore them. Jesus is a friend of the spiritually broken that are so battered by sin and its effects that they, they can't stand. They're almost done. And he's not going to break the bruised reed. He's not going to snuff out those who are smolding. And I mean in a spiritual sense. Physically, but more importantly, spiritually. He's not there to 
Squish the bugs, you know. People say, oh, I, I see. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't delight in stomping people who are struggling. No, he wants to lift them up and help them and save them and restore them. He never excuses sin, but he's always extending mercy. And finally, we see in verse 20, end of verse 20, Jesus is victorious. Notice, don't overlook the word until in end of verse 20. He will not br break a battered, bru bruised reed. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick until, what? Until he brings justice to victory, okay? It says in verse 20, and, and will until, until he leads justice to victory. Jesus is currently tender. And he's currently tolerant to those who are in opposition to him and to his people. But there's coming a day, folks. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will take his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. And justice, as the prophet Amos says, will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There's coming a day when a day of reckoning will come. And all who belong to him and suffer persecution, opposition, injustice will be vindicated. That's how I understand that. Jesus retreats into obscurity. Okay, and, and his retreat and his ministry and his message of mercy for the Gentiles and his actions of sen sensitivity towards the weak and his promise of ultimate victory serve these three purposes which we started out with. To confirm that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the king of kings. He is the king of Israel and the Lord of the nations. He's the true and promised Messiah. Secondly, we challenge us to accept him as Savior. If you're not a child of God, if you've never put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, he's screaming through this passage, I am the chosen servant of the, the God of the universe. I am the savior of the world. Trust in me and be free. Trust in me and be liberated from all that's weighing you down. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. But you have to surrender. It's none of this uh, got my toe in the water and I'm kind of testing the water. It's you're all in or you're all out for Jesus. And finally, it's a compulsion for those of us who know Jesus to follow his example, to live as Jesus lived and not be quarrelsome, to be humble, to be patient, to be kind and generous and, and considerate and understanding and not raise our voices and be boisterous and obnoxious uh, if, we, if we don't have to be, okay? And to share the gospel and make that our, our aim is to let people know that what they really need is they need Jesus. And if they have Jesus, their sins are forgiven and their life will take a new direction that will lead them towards fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life. You know, I just ask you, you know, if you're here this morning, you know, Jesus, I, I wrote down a couple of names. Who are the, who are the, who are the rejected, hurting, and, and downtrodden people in my life, in my experience that I know of, that, that I need to pray for and seek opportunities to minister to. In Jesus' name, all people, including Gentiles, which I'm pretty sure that's all of us, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure, I, mean, I can't swear for sure, but I'm pretty sure most of us are Gentiles because we're not of a Jewish race, right? So all of us 
have hope. And the hope that we have is something we're reminded of through breaking of bread and taking of the cup. Because the basis of our hope is Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Whereby all who believe are delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin so that we can live for him. And so you're all welcome if you know Jesus to partake of the bread and the cup. But if you do so, let us rejoice that we are the benefactors of the hope that Jesus brings to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your chosen servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you'd help me to follow his example, that I would be one who shines the light of, uh, of the good news to the nations, the people in my neighborhood, the people that I work with, the people that I interact with in stores and uh, business encounters. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts to shine the light of Christ, that we would be committed to, to share God's love and show God's love because we have received God's love. As we take a time to reflect on our own sin and confess and then rejoice and partake of these elements which remind us of your mercy, we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.